Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Caroline. Uh, very good morning, everyone. And uh, can I add my welcome to that of Wasis? My name's Alex, in case I haven't met you before. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Oh, you can do a little bit more. Merry Christmas. Oh, much better. I'm a bit hard of hearing, so that's uh, very good. Thank you very much. Uh, can I pray for us as we come and think about this wonderful reading? Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for the many gifts of Christmas, uh, for food and family and friends and fun. But above all, we thank you for your Son, our Saviour, Jesus, uh, your gift of him to us so that we would know you and be in relationship with you and know your grace and forgiveness and freedom and eternal life. And as we think about this old, old story, would you once again uh, give us the awe of the shepherds and the wonder of the wise people? as they beheld Jesus face to face. Lord, help us to give our lives to him. And we ask it in his name. Amen. 
Uh, one of the good stories that was told during uh, the year about Queen Elizabeth was from the head of her security detail. Um, the story was about uh, when the Queen was in her 80s and just the two of them uh, were picnicking near her estate in Scotland of Balmoral. And two American hikers uh, happened to be going by their picnic and they stopped for a chat. And they asked uh, the old lady um, whether she lived nearby. And she said, well, no, no, I actually live in London, but that she did have a place up there nearby that she'd been coming to for the last 70 years. And then the, the hikers made the observation that the Queen had a residence nearby uh, and uh, that it was there at Balmoral. And then the inevitable question came whether these two people had uh, met the Queen, whether these picnickers had met the Queen. And the Queen assured them that she, she hadn't met her, but that this guy next to her who was picnicking with her, he'd met her many, many times. And so Q the awes and the, the, the surprises and the wows, and then the inevitable question about what the Queen was like. And this guy said, well, the Queen can be a little bit gruff at times, but actually she was very nice. And then following all the obligatory photographs with the man who knew the Queen, um, and a final last photo with this old lady herself, these two hikers went on their way, at which point the Queen turned to her employee and said to him, imagine what their friends will say when they see those photos. <laughs> imagine that. Imagine being in their situation. You'd feel quite the fool, wouldn't you? Showing these photos, being all excited about being in the presence of a guy who knew the Queen, and yet failing to recognise that you'd been in the presence of Majesty herself. Uh, you know, in ancient times, kings and queens used heralds to announce their arrival. They used heralds so that people would know how to respond appropriately in the presence of royalty. Now, maybe those two American hikers uh, didn't recognise royalty because there were no heralds at that picnic near Balmoral. But at that first Christmas, angels were sent as heralds. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, we read this. They said, Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favour rests. Angels were sent as heralds to announce the arrival of the king. They were sent so that these shepherds would know how to respond properly to the majesty that had come in their midst. Now, this Christmas at St Andrews, our theme is Christmas playlist. We're looking at all our favourite Christmas carols, these songs which communicate ancient truths about real people in a real place responding to the birth of a child. And one of the most famous carols is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's a song which takes us back to the angels and their announcements. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. We're going to sing it a little bit later on, that's right. And every Christmas, we sing this carol. We sing this carol to remind ourselves of that announcement so that we don't make the same mistake as those two American hikers. We don't make the same mistake of failing to recognise the majesty that has come in our midst. And so this carol 
and the passage we just read before actually point to us three things about this newborn king. Three meaning-packed words. Incarnation, reconciliation, resurrection. And they're the things that we're going to be looking at this morning. First of all, incarnation. In this carol we sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The incredible claim of Christmas is this. In Jesus, God has become human. He's become incarnate, which is that word, made flesh. Um, Think of the sun. Uh, We have to think of the sun because you're not supposed to look at the sun. Uh, We can only look at the sun uh, uh, obliquely through something else. It's too bright. Its glory is too bright for us to be able to see. It will overwhelm your eyes and so you don't really actually see it. At best, it'll be a blur. At worst, it can burn your retinas. If you really want to see the sun, you need a filter. If you really want to see the glory of the sun, you need something through which you're going to see it. Uh, If you really want to enable yourself to see the the flames bursting and the sunspots and the explosions and the eruptions, if you want to see the glory of the sun, you have to look at the sun through something else. You can't see straight at it. Think of that line uh, by Charles Wesley in that famous carol, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Wesley was writing something incredible here. He wasn't writing Veiled in flesh the Godhead hidden, He was writing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Because God had become a human being. We can see his glory where otherwise there was no way we'd be able to see his glory. Remember back into the Old Testament, Moses asked God whether he could see God's glory. And God said, no, you can't. It will kill you. it's, it's, It's like it's going to burn the retina of your soul. You cannot see. But then the incredible claim of Christmas is that God has come amongst us. The Apostle John put it like this, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see what this means? When we see Jesus, when we read about Him in the Gospels, we behold God as human. Jesus is like like the filter, but Jesus is God himself. God constrains himself. He comes to us in a way that we can handle. And so we see his humility. We see his compassion. We see his wisdom. We see all the attributes of God as he was known to his people in the Old Testament. But here, God says to us, I can't show you myself directly, but in my son Jesus, you can draw near. And so God comes to us in human form. God becomes vulnerable, a baby, experiencing all the things that we do in life, you know, thirst and hunger, tiredness, pain, frustration, misunderstanding, suffering, grief, death. He becomes relatable to us because he he walked the road of human suffering long before any of us did. He comes to us in our mess, graspable, vulnerable, Relatable, intimate, breakable. You know, that's the incredible claim of Christmas. Hail the incarnate deity, 
pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That word incarnate, God made flesh. That name, Emmanuel, God with us. Think about what this means for a moment. Think about the implications. If God has become a human, then that means that God has come to intimate lengths in order to be with you, to get close to you, to get to know you personally and for you to get to know him personally. God went to infinite lengths. He left his glory above. Now, that means that that you must be willing to go to great lengths to get to know him. You know, it's not enough simply just to intellectually assent to his existence, to, to believe in him and let yet your life is unchanged. You say to God, you know, God, I believe this, but I don't believe that about you. I'll, I'll, I'll take what you say in your word here, but I'm not going to take that. That's negotiating with God. But if God has become flesh, if Jesus is God himself, then there's no negotiating with him. That's not treating God as God. If God has gone to infinite lengths to come close to us, then we come close to him. We, we say to him, God, my life has to be all about you. The carol tells us about incarnation, but then secondly, it tells us about reconciliation. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Uh, the first Christmas tells us about a profound and uncomfortable need. The angel said to the shepherds, Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now think about what that means for a moment. If God had thought that our primary need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had thought that our primary need was freedom from oppression, he would have sent us a great military leader. If he thought our greatest need was good government, he would have sent us a politician. If he thought our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he reckons that our greatest need was forgiveness, to have our sins dealt with, to have our alienation dealt with him, to have reconciliation with him. Therefore, he sent a saviour. Look, if we see the history of the whole world, we, we basically recognise that everyone who's ever lived on the face of the earth basically just wants to be happy. We want to have quiet lives. Uh, We want to have quiet lives where we don't mean to do anything, anyone any harm. But nearly, if nearly everyone feels like that, if we all feel like that, why do things go wrong? Not just in the world out there, but also in the world quite close to us, in our own lives. Why do things go wrong all the time? You know, it's because you and I are, are part of the problem. We're part of the problem. You see, our our good intentions are are not strong enough to alleviate the brokenness and our evil impulses. We need a saviour to rescue us from ourselves. And, And God, in his great understanding and compassion, has met our most profound need. And he sent to us a saviour. You know, inevitably, in, in all our relationships, our friendships, our family, or relationships with colleagues at work, there's an argument. And often in an argument, a conversation will go something like this. You're to blame. What have you done? No, I'm not to blame. You've done this. No, I'm not. You're, you're to blame. How can you say that? Your fault. And the conversation will go back and forth like this. And what's happening? Well, both sides have got their defences up. Both sides are refusing to make any concessions. 
And the danger is this relationship will deteriorate because there is no reconciliation. No one is willing to make the first step to seek healing. But then what if this happens? You know, again, the conversation starts, you're to blame for this, it's your fault. No, it's not, it's not my fault. It is your fault. Let me tell you why. Okay, it's my fault I'm to blame. What, what, what's happening? Well, one person is, is willing to drop their defences. One person is willing to make concessions. One person is willing to become vulnerable, which means the relationship can be restored and it can be restored so that it's even a deeper relationship than what it was before. Now, why would that person want to do that? Why would they want to drop their defences? Well, it's because in the midst of the, the hurt and the hostility and the yelling, one person decides that despite all the pain, they want the other person back. The relationship is too important. They want the relationship to be restored. And the only way the relationship can be restored is if one person takes the hit. One person observes, ab absorbs the, the hurt. The price of reconciliation is immense for a relationship to be healed. Reconciliation always comes at a cost. At Christmas, we remember that God drops his defenses. God becomes vulnerable. He becomes a baby. And you know, this, this baby will grow up to do all sorts of extraordinary things. But it's not through all these extraordinary things, through the miracles, through the healing, through the teachings, even through the example of compassion that this child will win reconciliation. No, this child wins reconciliation through suffering. That's the ultimate way in which he restores relationship with us. That's why if you want to know how this child brings peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, you've got to take this child out of his manger and put him to, on the cross. Because at the cross, where Jesus takes upon himself our brokenness, our evil impulses, our desire to keep our defenses up and justify ourselves, our rebellion against God, he takes all that freight, all that weight of human brokenness upon himself and he takes it to the cross. That's how he can offer forgiveness and shower us with mercy and grace and we can receive the Father's eternal embrace. Think about what this tells you about what you're worth to God. Think about the affirmation. God would do all of that for me. Think about the difference it would, would make to your life. If you let that truth go down a few floors from your head, down into your hearts. Once you see what God has done for you, how much he's loved you, that he's dropped his defenses so that you could be reconciled to him, then it makes an enormous, a world-changing difference in your relationship with him, but also in your relationship with other people. It makes you much more willing to drop your defenses so that you would have healing in other relationships. You're much more willing to absor absorb the hurt because you know that God has absorbed the hurt for you. We have incarnation and reconciliation, but then thirdly, resurrection. The reason why we remember Christmas at all is actually not because of Jesus' birth. And it's not even because of his death. It's because of his resurrection from the dead. Because if, if Jesus had died and stayed dead, uh, then it doesn't matter whether he was born or he lived or he died. 
because death would be the final word for him. It'd make no difference to us because death would be the final word on him. He'd be dead and we'd still be dead because that's the end of all things. But Jesus didn't stay dead. In the last stanza of this carol, we sing, Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, born that we no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. Do you see that? If you want to understand the good news of Jesus' birth, you have to see his defeat of death. The reason why he was born into the world was to bring healing from sin and death. He's born, he lives, he dies, and he rises so that death is no longer the final word on us. That's why we sing light and life to all he brings, risen with healings, healing in his wings. That's why we can speak of the reason for his birth, born that we no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. Friends, that in the nutshell is, is the Christian hope. The Christian hope is that Jesus has defeated death and one day will return again. Not as a vulnerable child in a manger, but as a magnificent king on a throne. A king with all the power and all the gentleness to wipe away every tear from our eyes. A king in whose presence we will no longer know sin and suffering and pain and death. In ki a king in whose presence we will live forever. Uh, every year or so, I read um, Tolkien's trilogy, uh, The Lord of the Rings. And he, he once explained why people find his stories so fascinating. Indeed, why people find fairy tales so fascinating. And he says it's because of eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe is this strange word, but it literally means a good downturn. A sudden shift in the story that pulls victory out of the jaws of defeat. It doesn't deny that the bad things in life, of pain and sorrow and, and, and death, but it's all about the utter joy coming out of utter misery. You know, a miraculous grace that is being given. And if you're familiar with The Lord of the Rings, there is a part in, in the last book where Sam, Samwise Gamgee wakes up after going through a terrible ordeal. And he sees Gandalf. And he says to Gandalf, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead too. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And it was a happy ending. And Tolkien, Tolkien reads the Gospels. And as a Christian man, he said, the eucatastrophe of the human history, of all of human history, is the birth of Jesus. And Tolkien looked at the Gospels and said, the Gospels contain a fairy story or a story of larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, uh, peculiarly artistic, beautiful and moving, but the story has entered history. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of human history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. The story begins and ends in joy. There is no tale ever told that people would rather find was true and none which so many sceptical people have accepted as true on its own merits. Do you see what he's saying? Far from being a myth or a fairy tale, the gospel story, the story that we remember at Christmas, 
is a true story. It's as true as you and I being here. And the greatest ever you catastrophe, which brings joy from despair and victory from defeat, the pinnacle of every story is the resurrection. Because in the resurrection, death has been defeated. Uh, last Wednesday, just the Wednesday gone, I went to be by the bedside of uh, Valerie Conybeer. Uh, many of you know Valerie by Auntie Valerie. Uh, in 1965, Valerie and Wendy Blackmuir uh, set up, founded the Home of Loving Faithfulness, an orphanage for special needs children here in Hong Kong. Valerie and, and Wendy, both of them, dedicated the vast majority of their lives for caring for the most vulnerable. And, you know, I held Valerie's hand and we celebrated communion and we prayed with her. And then 15 minutes afterwards, she went to go be with her saviour. You know, I don't, I don't know all of you here. Maybe you've been a Christian for many years. Or maybe you're here and you're exploring faith. You come because this is the time of year where you come. What is your hope in life and in death? Because when we look at the Christmas story, when we look at Jesus' story, we recognise that we're intimately involved we can't be passive, disinterested spectators in this because the remarkable thing about Jesus' story is that he came to earth for you. He was born for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He has risen for you. That means that if you trust in Jesus, your story doesn't end badly. If you trust in Jesus and you follow him, no matter what difficulties you go through in life, no matter what bad things you have done or unspeakable things you have committed, your story does not end badly. Everything sad will come untrue. And so how do you respond to this gift of Christmas? Don't be like those two hikers who didn't, appreciate, didn't comprehend the majesty when it was in their midst. Instead, once again, resolve to look at this child and behold him as your king. Your king who has come to you vulnerable, breakable and killable, but your king who has risen and who is now exalted and will one day return. The king that you will see face to face and behold in all his glory. Give yourself to him because he has given everything for you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this old, old story, which still has so much power and force and relevance to us today. It is the center of history. Your son, who left the glories of heaven above and became for us a vulnerable child, breakable and killable, going to the cross, bearing the burden of our sin, and rising to life, where one day we will see him in all his glory. Lord, we confess that we often just look at the good gifts that you give us, rather than the greatest gift of your son, Jesus. Lord, help us once again to unwrap this gift, and to behold him, and to have the joy of the angels, the awe of the shepherds, and help us to take him into our hearts and give our everything to him. 
We need your strength by your spirit to do this, Lord God. So help us to behold Jesus as our King. And we ask it in his name. Amen.